the idea of like, hey, I want to do something with Thai food. It took on the multiple iterations. So first was restaurant, and then I scratched that off. I was like, oh, maybe I'll do a food truck. Maybe I'll do a farmer's market stand. I tried doing a couple of those things and then scratched those off. Maybe I'll do a pop-up, scratch that off. And then that turned into a snack business. So it was like the fifth iteration. You're listening to the No BS Agency Podcast. We talk strategies that can take your one to two person branding agency from $5,000 to $30,000 per month without hiring employees or working your ass off. All you have to do is cut the BS. I am Pia Silva. This week, I'm going to share something a little off menu, a little backstory. A couple weeks ago, I went to my 20-year high school reunion. Well, I didn't just go to it. I also hosted it, obviously, because that's what I do. Uh, And it was so fun. I was so excited to see all of these people I went to high school with. Now, I know some people cringe when they think about high school reunions, but as I realized when I was explaining this to somebody else, my school is a little bit different than that because the high school started in seventh grade. So we spent six years together instead of four, which is very different, right? You spend seventh and eighth grade with these people and then go into high school together. And the other reason is because I was with 40 of those kids starting in kindergarten. So there are... 40 people out there in the world that I was in school with for a full 13 years. And there's something really special about knowing people your entire life and having spent that many years together in a school that was even small when we got to high school. There were only 180 kids in our grade in 7th through 12th. So I just have so much love for all of these people, even if most of them I only see at reunions. Anyway, One of the people that I saw that I've known since I was five years old is Vincent Kitteraratragarn, or Vinny. Now, I was excited to see Vinny, especially just to congratulate him on the business that he has been building, because I've been watching it from afar. You see, Vinny is the founder and CEO of Dang Foods, the largest healthy Asian snack company. You know those delicious coconut chips you guys see at the end of the aisle in Whole Foods? That's Finney's company. And I have been watching this thing grow in front of my eyes and on the shelves in all of my favorite supermarkets for the last 10 years. So of course, we got to chatting. We're a couple of the only entrepreneurs in the group. Most of the people that we went to school with became doctors and lawyers, and they're working for the government. They're all super accomplished, and it's really, really impressive. But most of them aren't entrepreneurs. So of course, we gravitated to each other at this reunion. And we started chatting. And he was just telling me kind of behind the scenes stories about how he's been building this company over the last 10 years. How once they hit $10 million, that's when things really started to get hairy. And it was just so fun talking to him that I said, okay, Vinny, I want to catch up with you more. And why don't we just record it? Because then I can share it with my audience. So that's what you're going to get today. Just a little behind the scenes catch up conversation with my old friend Vinny about his company, Dang Foods. So a little bit about Dang Foods. They have coconut chips, rice chips, and nutrition bars, and they are found in over 10,000 grocery stores. They've earned many industry awards, including the coveted SoFi Best Snack Award multiple times. Vinny is a Cornell graduate, a Forbes 30 Under 30 awardee, a Gold List A100 awardee, and his journey was featured on NPR's How I Built This Podcast in 2022. Vinny's also been, I keep calling him Vinny, Vincent has also been an active member of the Asian American community for decades, organizing an annual Thai American youth camp, supporting local organizations, advancing justice for underrepresented ethnic communities, and supporting Bay Area food banks. In the natural food industry, Vincent advocates for Asian issues like the recognition of Lunar New Year and AAPI Heritage Month. He's also a board member of Jedi Collective, an industry group promoting justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. So without further ado, here's my catch-up conversation with Vincent Kitteratragarn. Okay, here you are with this incredible business. I can't wait to hear everything about this. I don't remember when you started this, 
All I remember is at some point I saw it on the shelves and I was like, oh, Vinny's business. <laughs> and then I think I saw it, I guess it must have been in Whole Foods when I saw it. And that obviously that was probably, I, I don't know how many years ago at this point, but I was like, oh, that's so cool. That was the first time I think I'd ever seen something in the world where it's like, oh, I think I know the person who made that. And now it's in like a really important place <laughs> in Whole Foods. <laughs> it was such a trippy experience. So tell me when you started it. Um, so I started working on the project in 2011, and it didn't look like a you know snack business at the time. The initial concept was like I just want to do something with Thai food because I feel like the Thai food that we grew up with in the U.S. is mostly pad Thai and mango sticky rice and sweet things. Uh -huh. um, but I went to Thailand every year to see family, and, and I just thought the food there was much better. It's more flavorful. It's spicier. It's just riskier, you know. Uh -huh. um, and so I started a pop-up restaurant in San Francisco to uh, to serve those risky dishes. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, and it went it went great. I only did two pop-ups, but you know, I learned I learned I definitely don't want to run a restaurant because um, it's yeah. really hard and a lot of work. But oops! At the same time, I also learned um, people really gravitated toward this one ingredient, which is toasted coconut. And I was like, all right, that works. Let's just go with that. Okay, so 2011, that's when we started our business, by the way. So however old we were, that was like a good time. What did you do before yeah, that? 27. 27 is a good year to 27, yeah. Uh -huh. You're a couple of years out of college, so you're not just a total baby, but yeah. you're still hungry and down yeah. to hustle your face off. So what did you do between college and that? Uh, I worked for the city of New York. And City of New York buys $4 billion of stuff every year, cars, lights, paper. And my degree in environmental engineering, I was like, you know what? You know, they, they, they hired me to help them do that stuff. And it was really boring. And I, I hated it um, because city bureaucracy is terrible. Yeah. And it was like a really stagnant environment for like a young idealistic graduate with like a ton of energy, right? Yeah. Especially in that space, you're like trying to do yeah. good things for the world. Yeah, I was. <laughs> and instead you're in bureaucracy. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. I had a much shorter stint, sim similar idea, like worked at the Clinton Global Initiative and was like, oh, I'm gonna change the world with the Clinton yeah. Foundation. And like, yeah. it, it was three months, that was it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, this yeah. is horrible. I'm never doing this again. I feel like you gotta get out of your system as like a young idealist, right? You're just like, oh, I'm gonna go change the world. And then you get your shit kicked in. It's like, well, I gotta figure out what I want to do now. <laughs> you you have to learn on the job that that that's not the way you're going to change the world, not with all your energy. Mm -mm. Okay, so yeah. you did that for a little bit, and then what? Um, I went to DC, did that same thing for a nonprofit, which is cool, except the nonprofit ran out of money, um, so I had to quickly find another job. And as a startup in San Francisco called Good Guide, it was an app where you can scan a barcode and it'll tell you the rating, environmental, social, and health rating based on science. Uh -huh. And um, yeah, I helped them create these ratings for these thousands of consumer products. That was a cooler okay. experience. And I was like, oh, I'm in like Silicon Valley tech, tech startup. Also ran out of money. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, also laid off a ton of people, including me. Like at the same time I started day, they laid me off. Uh -huh. And I was like, I either get a new job or just see how this goes. I'm like, roll the dice. So I ended up rolling the dice. Okay. And then you did your, your pop-up restaurants. Did you know anything about cooking? Besides like cooking at home? Yeah, so the, the nonprofit in DC was a, a four day a week like nonprofit where they only had to work four days a week. So um, on the side on the weekends, I'd go to this like flunky little Thai restaurant in this dude's house that had like five tables and had like cats and was was not the, the cleanest restaurant, but like delicious and like uh -huh. called favorite in DC called Thai Crossing. Yeah, like I'd not an official restaurant or, or it, it was? It was an official restaurant, but I don't think it would pass all the health codes today. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Um, but yeah, I basically worked for free there. It was it was a cool experience, but you know, something wow. you want to do when you're like mid twenties, not not in your mid thirties. <laughs> okay. So you you worked there for free, and then you did, but you that didn't scare you off. You had two pop up restaurants because of that. Yeah. So like, you know, the idea of like, hey, I want to do something with Thai food. It took on me up multiple iterations. So first was restaurant, and then I scratched that off. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll do a food truck. Maybe I'll do a farmers market stand. I tried doing a couple of those things and then scratched those off. Maybe I'll do a pop-up, scratch that off. And then that turned into a snack business. So it was like the fifth iteration 
So it wasn't like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and write a business plan, you know, sell coconut chips to Whole Foods. Like that doesn't happen. I was like, all right, let me just test this out. All right. Test didn't work out. Change it up. See what happens again, which I didn't know, but like, that's how people make products, right? Like that's how like you develop a business is just test, iterate, test, iterate. Yeah. So that's how we came up with a business plan. And you were just set on doing something with Thai food. Yeah. Yeah. And you knew you wanted to start your own business. Yes. So it's like Thai food and business, but let's try different things until we yes. figure out what the best thing is. Okay. Yes. So then everybody liked the coconut chips and they kept being like, dang, Vinny, <laughs> these are good. You were like, I should call it that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Does dang mean something in Thai? Yeah. It means red. It's also my mom's name. So my mom, you know, her English name is Diane. Her Thai name is Dumarat, but then everyone in Thailand gets a nickname, and hers is Dang. Um, oh, nice. And so, uh, yeah, I was like, why not just name it after her? It means, you know, in English, it's like you say it when you're, you're surprised or you're like, dang, this is good. And then, yeah, I could give it to people, and, you know, their reactions would be like, dang, this is really good. And then they laugh, and, you know, it's more memorable yeah. that way. Like, when you create a brand, you need, like, multiple, like, levels and then you also need a reason for people to remember you right so that was one of our claims to fame i love that there's like a background story and it's authentic and and real for you and like you said it's got layers it's got legs that's so fun and you brought it with your brother is that true mm -hmm. yeah i was working in 2011 on the project I like went to my first food show in 2012, um, this big natural product show in Anaheim. He came with me to that because I was like, hey, I need help. Um, but he was still working as an accountant. He was at KPMG, big accounting firm. And then I first started getting orders later that year. But he was still kind of like, you know, I don't really know if this is a thing yet. And, you know, I still have a career. So he didn't join. And then in like February 2013, that's when I got big purchase orders from Safeway. So Safeway brought us into a thousand stores. Wow. And I was like, well, I really need help now because we're like, this is becoming a thing. Like we're not, we're not just like noodling around. We're like, yeah. we have an opportunity here. And I asked him to join and yeah, we started working together and it's been 10 years. Wow. Okay. So what's it like to scale up a snack company? It's I, everything I know about snack companies is from Shark Tank. So forgive me, mm. but it seems like a really high cost business to start it seems like it just eats cash it seems like you just always have to feed the beast all those things are true okay yeah i mean bringing a snack product to market um and it's totally changed today because now you can sell stuff online and when oh, i started you... it wasn't that wasn't the game right you weren't selling stuff online it was like get into grocery stores just getting distribution right. at grocery stores oh, so goodness. that's what we did um so we had this thing, right? These coconut chips and we we're like, all right, somebody else is going to make this and we need to kind of rush and just grab the market. We basically said yes to, you know, it wasn't very strategic. We said yes to stores, grocery stores, even like discount stores like TJ Maxx. We were just like grabbed, grabbed space, right? Um, and we grew really fast for the first three, four years doing that. But the hardest part of that component, that piece was like cash flow. So like I didn't pay myself for three years because I was like, oh, the business needs money. Like. You have this timeline of when you buy products and when you sell products and get paid for it. And the longer that is, the less you can actually flip, right? Mm -hmm. So you can't flip it for more, right? Um, and for us, you know, we're buying from overseas. And so one huge advantage we had was my family in Thailand, they were like, hey, let's help you with this. So they set up a company to sell me the products and to help finance. And so I didn't have to pay until after I received it here in the U.S which is huge, right? Otherwise I have to pay product 90 days or something before I actually can like get get paid on it. So yeah, those first three years were just like pumping money back in, pumping money back in, didn't pay ourselves. My brother and I sat down one day and we were like, you know what, where are we going with this? We have this nice business. And at that time, like if I were to do this again at that time, I would probably looked at selling the business because we were growing so fast. We grew to like $10 million in like three or four years that that growth is worth something to a private equity firm, a larger business. Like I probably should have looked at selling it then, but I didn't know that was an option, right? I was like, well, we haven't paid ourselves and like, you know, we should start earning salary. So the, the only option we knew of was to raise money. So we did our first raise in 2016. 
um, what we raised like $4 million. Okay. So you were around a $10 million revenue. Yes. And that's when you raised an extra 4 million. And what was the 4 million for? Um, well, what we said it was for, is, mm-hmm. you know, new products, hiring a team. Yeah. Getting distribution, slotting fees, just like bullshit, you know, mm-hmm. um, what it really ended up like, I think a lot of that money got wasted because we try to adopt a different sales team structure where they're very field heavy. So big, big companies like vitamin water, you know, Stacy's pita chips, like they have field teams that go out into stores and they create these big, beautiful displays that catch your eye. Right. And our funders was like, Hey, you know, we, we did that with our brand that we sold to Hershey's. Um, and we think it could work for you. So we're like, all right, let's try it out. So we did it, but after like six, seven months, we're like, this isn't really working. Like our sales aren't going up that much. So we were forced to have to, you know, change the structure pretty quickly. Um, so we had to do layoffs, which sucked. First round of layoffs you do was just like, I was crying more than people that I was like letting go. Cause I was just like, so sorry, you had to do this. But the lesson learned here is like, you know, your, your, your product, your, your sales team, like it's not gonna, you can't just copy somebody else's playbook, you know? Our items are more unique. They require a little more education. It's a different category. Like there's so many little weird pieces, components to it that like we try to copy this big player's book and it just didn't work for us. So the the in-store demonstrations, I totally see that. And that's an expensive on the ground thing to do. And you're saying that's what the big guys do. Because I, I picture that as that you, that would be perfect for you. Like that, that that's what the smaller brand, like we- the growing brands would be doing because they need I don't know, visibility. No, no, so you were talking about different things. I think you were talking about like demonstrations, which we did a yeah. ton of those. I've done like hundreds of these where you stand in the store, you give people product, you tell people your story. Um, and the big guys actually don't do that. The big guys hire field teams to just build these big displays. So when you walk into foyer of a Whole Foods and you see LaCroix, that's like floor to ceiling. Like oh. there's a team that went in there at 4 a.m. to build that. You and know, you have to pay for the space? Team. Sometimes. Yeah. If the teams are good, then they can negotiate and get the space. Yeah. There's different ways to get the space. I'm paying for space to Whole Foods. Right now, I have like a national all shelf and I don't have to do any execution. Like they're doing the execution. They're building the stuff for us. But at other points, you know, you have to do it yourself. There's many different ways to go to market. And yeah, the game isn't getting any easier than it once was. I can imagine. So, so you said that marketing is, you got to find your own way in marketing. Like what have you found really works for you? It took us a while to, to get to our brand positioning as it stands today. So as we stand today, we're a modern Asian snack brand, right? But when we started, we weren't, we were just like dang coconut chips. And then we had to figure out, okay, what if, like, what did we stand for besides just having a coconut chip product? Cause now people, it's not something that's like ownable, right? And then after a couple of iterations, again, we realized, okay, like, you know, we looked around these trade shows, we're like, we're like one of the only non-white people here, we're one of the only Asian people here, we're definitely one of the only Southeast Asian people here. So like, why don't we just own that <laughs> and then tell people that story? Mm-hmm. And so in 2018, our nurse packaging, like we were designing it, we hired a, a Thai Chinese uh, design designer and created this really nice packaging and then you know, created this brand story around, okay, Deng's my mother's name. She comes from Asia, like Southeast Asia. You know, she gave me this recipe. And like, it's really about telling the story as much as possible. Because that, that, that's what people remember. Um, there's no silver bullet when it comes to marketing for us. There's nothing that like propels us from like zero to a million. Um, like we've been New York Times. We've done social media stuff with Kourtney Kardashian and Chrissy Teigen, like huge influencers. But like all that stuff is just a blip, right? It's really about this sustained, you know, I think like, you know, the best way to do it is be like, okay, I think this huge category, say cereal needs to be disrupted with like, you know, low carb, high protein alternatives. And I'm going to build a brand based on that and continue telling people like, hey, you eat cereal. Why don't you eat a healthy cereal? You know, that's the most effective way to do it in consumer products. So yours is a modern Asian snack. Is it mm-hmm. snacks specifically or modern Asian food? Snack. Snacks. How how far does that go? Like how much outside of the coconut as a main ingredient does that go? Yeah, I mean, we have products that don't have any coconut in them. We have, you know, our Thai rice chips don't have coconut in them. 
our Thai rice chips. Have you had it? Have you tried it? I have had your Thai rice chips, actually. Yeah. I had them in Florida. Yeah. They're delicious. All so of, they're, everything I've had are delicious. Thanks. They're, Go they're, buy dang foods. <laughs> yeah. They're dang good. They're dang um, good. Yeah, so the Thai rice chips are... It's a, it's a Thai street food. Like, it's a snack you can buy on the, the, the ground in Thailand. It's called Khao Tan, which is, like, it's like a crispy, almost like a rice cake. Uh-huh. Um, and so that one, we, like, found it at the Bangkok airport, and we're like, why are so many Chinese tourists buying, like, boxes and boxes of this stuff at, like, $10 a box? And we tried it, and we're like, this is great. Um, we found out they, they do 10,000 boxes a day just through that airport alone of this stuff, which is, like, great. Third contact manufacturer, we're like, hey, we want to sell your stuff in the U.S. under our name, and he's like one of our greatest partners. And he came to my brother's wedding, which is pretty funny. Oh, cool. Uh, but yeah, so so to answer the question, like, we're not claiming just coconut. We're claiming like East and Southeast Asian and snacks and snacking culture too. Like, there's a whole culture around eating small meals throughout the day. You know, there's a whole culture around whenever you're having a beer, you have like some some nuts to go with it. Like, there's different elements of this, and we want to pervade all that yeah i mean there's no brand that comes to mind in that category to me like nobody owns that space so that's yours for the taking surprising Mm -hmm. now that you're saying that (laughs) yeah i mean well think about it like you know when asians when you say asian snacks like what 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 comes to your mind like pocky yeah (laughs) yeah and pocky is what it's chocolate and a biscuit there's nothing inherently there's nothing asian about it from a japanese company quicko right Right. Um, but like when you go and you like look at all the ingredients that are in Asia, there's a lot of stuff to work with. There's coconut, there's rice, there's sesame, you know, there's matcha. Like people don't eat chocolate as much in Asia. They like green tea, green tea, chocolate. Like that's a huge thing. Right. Right. So, so to clarify, like I, I can think of lots of Asian flavored snacks that I eat but there's no brand that I think right. of, right? Like in fact, yeah. and I, when I think of like those little, those little like, um, I don't even know what they are, like the mixed, I think they like call it like mixed Asian <laughs> you know, with like the spicy things and like the little crunchy things and the little peas, you know, they don't have a brand. They like are just yeah. in a plastic um, container or, you know, like seaweed and like things like that. I just feel like we, we eat a lot of those things, but yeah, there's no like brand that really owns that category in my mind, at least. Yeah. You yeah. go to an Asian, you go to an Asian supermarket to get those things, right. and then you just buy whatever brands right. they have there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the U.S., I think the big brands are the ones that invest in branding and, mm. and marketing, and a lot of the brands that you're mentioning, um, Pocky, you know, Koalas, Pandas, like all these little. There's tons of them. Right. They don't they don't invest as much in marketing here in the US because, you know, for whatever reason, like they might not see a return on it or they're like, okay, it's a niche market, you know, we're only selling in Asian markets. But like who's to say that people like won't eat pocky like will buy po- won't eat, won't buy pocky at a Walmart. You know, won't buy pocky at a Whole Foods. Right. But you you'd know? have to market it. I mean that's the whole yeah. I mean, maybe it's just not even in their radar, like because it's a whole different marketing strategy to market your brand to the greater, bigger population than just to, 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 right? to like white Americans. Yeah. Like that's a different, different play than Asian Americans, right? You have to decide who you're targeting. Are you targeting Asian Americans, white Americans, black Americans? Like you right. have to get really specific with your cohort, right? Like, okay, I'm targeting, you know, women between 25 and 40 in big coastal cities with high incomes and high education. Like you have to get really specific with it. I'm like, you know, I didn't just make up those things. Those are on our slides too. Like this is who we're going after. But the more specific you get, the more you can answer questions like, oh, should I put Thai lettering on the packaging? You know, right. should I put my, my baby picture on the back? Uh-huh. Like, these are all <laughs> well, I do remember easier. at one point seeing you have your signature on the back. The big companies like Frito-Lay, right? Big, huge snack company. They can do what we do. Mm-hmm. They can sell our products. What they can't do is sign the back. What they can't do is put pictures of themselves and their families on the back. You know, mm-hmm. If they were like, oh, okay, let's create an Asian snack brand, they would make it look great and it would taste great and it would be cheap, right? But they can't like be like, oh, this is my mom's recipe. So like, that's what we have that we can own. Yeah. So we're going to do that. <laughs> and when you were talking before about like the kind of blips, like you can do like marketing things do they create these surges of sales that that won't 
sustain, but will, um, I would imagine it's like you get a bunch of people to try something and then some of those people stick and just over time you have like habitual, uh, rebuyers. I mean, is that what, is that what the growth looks like that you kind of, you kind of keep acquiring customers who will keep buying your product on a regular basis? So there's that, right? Uh -huh. Like we, we track repeat purchase rates and ours is about 28%, mm -hmm. but there's also churn. Like there's also people dropping off or substituting for other things. That's mm -hmm. harder to calculate in our world because, you know, if you're, if you're doing like a DTC or a, like a e-commerce product, it's easier to track that stuff. Yeah. But for us, it's not as easy to, easy to track, especially when you're doing stuff in store. Like there's a huge, black box that our product just goes into when we sell product in store. We don't know when the product gets bought necessarily, who bought it, you know, what they use it for, when they, when they consumed it, if they bought it again, like there's a lot of opportunity, I think. Um, and like there's now more online shopping. So you are getting at these questions, but like, you know, it's, it was, it was like the dark ages, <laughs> you know, when we first started out, we were selling stuff. We're like, who's buying our stuff? We have no idea. If, 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 if you are sophisticated enough and you have the data, you can be like, okay, so this is my purchase, you know, repeat purchase rates, but there's no churn, there's the amount of people that are leaving each month. And so my actual, my true growth rate is like lower than the repeat purchase rate. Right. So, and I think that's important to figure out, like once you've, one, you can't just solve one, right? And then hope for growth. You actually have to solve both and they're different problems. So the first one is like, how do you keep customer, how do you get repeat purchases? But then the second one is how do you prevent them from going competitors or substitutes? And that one's been a tougher question for us because we're not, not like a popcorn company where it's like, okay, they're just gonna go to this other popcorn. So we had to ask ourselves like, what is a substitute for a coconut chip? You know, is it a sweet, crispy snack? Is it, what is that, a cookie? Like, what is that, a cracker? What is that, ice cream? Like, you know, when are people eating this stuff? Right. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if we have a good answer to that, but stuff that we've like thought about and, you know, discussed over the years. Yeah. Well, how do you get any at any of that information? Do you I'm so curious if you do like, um, what are they called? Surveys with people? What are they called? Yeah, focus groups. <laughs> focus groups. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you trust focus groups. That's why I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I really learned in the focus group was like, our old packaging, we weren't getting credit for telling our story. You know, like, we wrote a a story on the back, but like somebody was like, who could, who's Vincent and Andrew? They could be some tech bros that just like visited Thailand once. So we weren't really like telling our story effectively. So we did learn something, but on the whole, I would say, yeah, focus groups are not, you're going to get a distilled version of, of, you know, the story of like, of like what is actually going on. Mm -hmm. um, and like, I'll give you an example of like a product that was kind of probably focus group to death. Mondelez, which is this huge company, they owned like, you know, um, Oreos, right? Um, okay. They used to be part of Kraft Heinz, but they're a huge snack company, one of the biggest in the world. And they were like, all right, we're going to do a world inspired snack. So they did a bunch of focus groups, you know, they hired these product developers, they like got to be the perfect margin and they got these beautiful packaging and it looks like it's like uh, South American mixed with like Latin American, Central American, and then also like there's an Asian one. So they're like, going for the world here uh -huh. and then they launched it and they can easily put it in like thousands of stores because they're one of these but it totally failed it totally failed like what you got at the end was just like the average of what everybody wants and that's what you get in a focus group kind of unless mm -hmm. you like listen to specific things it's like everyone's gonna be like oh, okay kind of like this kind of like this but like generally in groups and big groups people don't really you know you're not going to get something really good you have to like talk to you or like, okay, I fucking love your product. I'm gonna buy it 10 times a day. Like talk to that person. Mm -hmm. I know why that person is buying your product 10 times a day. And like, how can you find more people like that? Yeah, so we've done focus groups. I don't think that they're super insightful. Hey guys, I wanted to jump in here really quickly and ask you for a little favor. If you are loving this episode, please just take 60 seconds and leave it a review right now. Reviews help other people find us so we can help more people show their businesses who's boss. I thank you in advance for your help. All right, back to the show. So who's your person that you want to find 10 times a day? So like at the very beginning, it was, okay, who understands what a coconut chip is? 
Because we like not everyone does. But it's probably yeah. somebody who's had coconut water. It's probably someone who maybe have cooked with coconut oil. It's probably someone who's traveled to a beach and like drank a coconut, you know, and has that association. So like I'm guessing you've done all those yeah. things, right? Yeah. You live in a coastal city, you know, young professional or young mom, like right. very busy, got a lot to do, but like want some energy, want to feel good about your energy, like you're not just, you know, empty carbs and sugar. So like, you know, you care about ingredients, right? You care about right. um you know, how your product is sourced, right? It's not it's ethically sourced, it's not sourced, you know, terrible labor practices. So like all those things kind of you just you have a person in mind, mm-hmm. someone who looks like you. Gotcha. Um, and you try to find more of them. Gotcha. You're probably the target consumer for tons of consumer products, by the way. Right. <laughs> like being a young woman, disposable income, like yeah, you're you're the dream. Right, right. Sell me things, people. Sell me things. Um, so does that mean what does that mean about your like where you put your product? Like, do you not put it in certain states? Some people do that. We did like a regional rollout. So started in the West Coast, went to the East Coast, kind of filled in the middle. But yeah, our strongest markets are still New York, LA, San Francisco. Sure. That makes sense. So this whole journey has been, I would imagine, like at these numbers, it's, I, I mean, as an entrepreneur myself, it's like I have gone through so many roller coasters of emotions and, you know, the highs are high and the lows are low. And I can just imagine you're just feeling that at even a more extreme, <laughs> I'm just guessing, like, what has it been? Has it been kind of roller coaster, like kind of roller coaster, like going up, but, or what has it been like? Have you been able to keep it steady maybe? Cause it's a product and like it's a low price thing. Like for me, every client is worth like tens of thousands of dollars. So to win or lose is to either be like huge or nothing. Yeah. I mean, the best one is the first one, <laughs> you know, like I remember getting that first sale and just being like, wow, you're going from zero to one. Like that's huge. Yeah. Now when you're going from like a million to a million and a half. It's different. It's different. But no, I mean the emotional part of being a, a, an entrepreneur i think people are just starting to kind of wrap their heads around and talk about it but yeah like there's a lot of sleepless nights there's a lot of hey like i wish i had someone to go through this with you know lonely at the very beginning especially if you don't have a co-founder like i've gone through bouts of depression i've seen multiple therapists i've talked to counselors i've like had group therapy with other people in the business like i've you know, I haven't done it all, but like 10 years running your own, running your own business, you're going to have, you're going to deal with a lot of conflict. You're going to deal with a lot of heartbreak. You're going to deal with like some highs and hopefully you don't come out jaded on the other side. Like I still want to start another business. You know, I still want to keep going with this because that's what I know how to do now. And I feel like what I learned this first time around, you know, my second tour is going to be smoother. It might not be smooth, but it'll be smoother. Absolutely. So what's the goal? Like what, what do you want to do with this business? And what kind of timeline are you on? So right now, you're catching us at the tail end of a global supply chain crisis. Right. right. So, so like, if you're making a product here in the U.S. and you're sourcing an ingredient from overseas, you're going to have a problem getting your ingredient. We are sourcing our whole product from overseas. So like, our products are made in Thailand. The coconut chips and rice chips are made in Thailand and then shipped over here in like, ready-to-sell boxes, um, which means we have a lot more money sitting on the water at any given time or in a port right and so like that just stretches your cash flow like i was talking about when you you know pay for your product versus when you actually get paid on it like that got stretched out really wide for us um which has been really tough just cash flow wise it's like tough so as a business now we we are we have to look at financing partners to continue funding the business right um because we just need that much more cash to put in a product but we haven't been able to do a lot of what we wanted, like launch new products, like expand, like it's been more like mindful operating right now, which actually is like a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs are like, that's their comfort zone. You know, like it's not trying to spend crazy amounts of money just to grow, 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 but like managing like a a smaller, but pretty business is, is, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah. So what kind of entrepreneur are you? It's a good question. It depends on the day. <laughs> I'm I'm not like, so I think the people that are like grow at all costs and really like put faith in themselves, that comes from somewhere. Like usually that comes from some belief that they are 
you know, invincible and like I am, you know, ready to take on the world. And a lot of that is ego, right? And I don't think I'm that ego driven. Mm -hmm. I think I'm like, okay, like what makes sense today? You know, what does the market look like? Like, how would our resources look like? Like, I think there's a more mindful way to do that. So I think it depends. Like, and then I didn't definitely, when we started this, I didn't like, didn't know as much about brand, like building a brand or like, you know, even like product margins and like cash flow and financing, like all this stuff is, you know, I had to learn on the go. But now having gone through it, I'm like, all right, well, next time I do this, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna have different margin structure for my business, different different financing, it's going to look totally different than the way we set it up now. I think the way we set up the business is is great for like, you know, who we are and where we're at. But I, I think it'd be very tough to set up the same business today and have the same type of success. You know, a decade later, it's a totally different ballgame. Really? Because of all the access to online selling and just the whole makeup? Yeah. You would do it differently? Yeah, yeah, totally. More, do you think there's more opportunity or more competition or it's just different? Yeah, I mean, how does your shopping habit like changed in the last 10 years? Yeah, I refuse to go to a store. Right. <laughs> so like during the pandemic, you know, I think it was 4% of groceries were bought online before pandemic and now it's like 11%. So it's almost tripled. Um, Only 11%? It's still, yeah, it's still low. <laughs> that's you know, so you low. At, you look at China and it's like 70% up. Really? So like, there's still going to be this huge, yeah, like wave just towards e-commerce and online shopping. Yeah. I mean, like that's a big opportunity right there. You know, it's, it's a challenge. So I'm selling a product directly to you. Everyone's expectations now are like, get it to me now, right? Get it to me fast, get it to me cheap. Like, you know, it's, it's not easy to compete against behemoths like Amazon, but you can build huge businesses selling direct to consumers if you have the right product, proposition, pricing, all that, all the P's, right? And there's the new, the next generation of food businesses is gonna be that. It's gonna be built online. It's not gonna be built in stores. They'll probably start online and then they'll go into stores once they're big enough. Someone just told me uh, like yesterday or the day before that there are restaurants opening where it's, there's no restaurant. It's just like a seamless takeout restaurant where they have like a big kitchen and they cook all types of food in it just to have a- Ghost kitchens? I don't know. Is that what they're called? Yeah. So ghost kitchens, like those are the ones that just sell on Seamless or DoorDash or, you know, Caviar, right? Yeah. I mean, there's one down the street from me. My experience with it, the food is terrible. <laughs> the food is terrible. Oh, well, that's something different. Just the but, idea. Yeah. Yeah, but the idea is great. Like you can just exist online. You don't have to exist and have an actual retail space. Right. You know? So you can yeah. spend so much less money and your margins can be so much better. Of course, you have to yeah. have good food. Yeah. <laughs> uh, interesting. So are you going to sell it at some point? Do you want to sell it and build a new business? Or maybe you don't know yet. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. Okay. If I got the right offer, do you want to buy it? Okay. <laughs> if I got the right offer. I so. would not know the first thing about running <laughs> a food business, a product business, um, a snack business, any of those things. No, have you, you have products. <laughs> yeah, but they're totally different. It's totally different. But actually, there was a time. You have you read Rich Dad Poor Dad? Yes. Yes, I love that book. So I read it. Uh, Steve and I were like in Hawaii or something, so we're kind of off the grid reading books and. And I read it again and I was like, we need a product. And that's actually where we started. We came up with the idea to even do anything online, like selling info products, because I was thinking, what is the product we should do? And the first product we thought of was like a badass baby, like, like baby gift, like a box that had like only cool things for babies, like like when you go to a baby shower or something. Anyway, we never did it because I, as soon as I started looking at the numbers with products, I was like, this is hard and <laughs> expensive. And then I immediately after that said, you know what, what is the thing that we have? It's the Im information. So an information product makes sense for us. Yeah, well, but that brings up a different question, which is like, how do you get that product idea? How do you start a new business? You know, where does that come from? Yes, well, I think you were doing some of that knowing you want to start a business and then looking around and playing with things to figure out what the product was going to be for you. I mean, that's, that's kind of what I did too. It was like, I want to have yeah. something. So what's it going to be? 
as yeah. opposed to, I think a lot of people think it's more like lightning strikes. Oh, I have an amazing idea. Oh, now it's the idea that's, that's, um, yeah. guiding the process, but you know, ideas are shit. Yeah. Cause you having this dang coconuts idea really wasn't going to build the business that you have today. I mean, we tried a lot of things and failed too. So ideas, they're good ideas. They tested well, but, but it's work. what's a good, what's an example of something that, that didn't work that sounded good. Um, so, you know, Funyuns, the, the, you know, the snack product Funyuns. Yeah. We're like, Oh, why don't we do that with real onions? Cause that's made out of corn. And so we like found someone who made these like really nice un crispy onions. Uh huh. Um, yeah, it tastes great. And we sold it at Safeway. And, you know, initially, like, people told us they loved it when they, like, when I came up and tried it at our booth. But then, like, when it actually came to, like, buying and rebuying it, like, people just weren't as into it. Huh. Why do you think? Any idea? So there's, Onion breath? You know, yeah, so that's actually something I did not think of like, uh -huh. up until, you know, we started asking more people about it. You know, people were a little worried, hey, I'd come back with this onion breath. It's hard to sell onions without telling people like, you're going to have onion breath. Even though it, when you caramelize it, it doesn't, you don't have that. Eating caramelized onions is totally different, right? You get mm -hmm. rid of all that sulfur compound stuff when, in the cooking process. But still, people thought that they would have onion breath. See, I could have talked to you and saved a million dollars. I could have told you that. Next time you have an idea, call me. I'll I have an know. idea now. What's your idea? A way to donate 100 gallons of water for every bottle of water that I sell. So if I sold you a bottle of water, how much would you pay for a bottle of water? 16 ounce, regular bottle, a dollar. bucks? Yeah. So I can find a way to donate 100 gallons of water by investing in like water purification projects. So, How's that? 100 gallons well, per bottle? Yeah, so, so here's the key. I'm creating a plant that will operate for 25 years and provide clean, safe water to a community in Honduras, but it's gonna take 25 years to get that Okay. 100 gallons delivered to that community, okay. right? Does that seem misleading to you, or do you think that's a fair claim? Be like 100 gallons for this one bottle of water. Interesting. For every bottle, there'll be 100. So for every yeah. dollar or two, that will generate another 100. For every $2 that you spend on a bottle of water, my company will like donate to a partner that will create this plant. Is that misleading? Well, once you tell the story, it doesn't sound bad, but if I hear it first and then I hear the story, then that's where the misleading thing feels because you, because I hear the first part and I make an assumption. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're like a little skeptical at the beginning. I wouldn't be skeptical until I heard the story after, especially if it wasn't upfront. Okay. That's tough because people, we don't like to buy insurance and things like that, <laughs> buy things for the future. But it's like, mm. they will need that water even more in 25 years. Mm -hmm. I like the idea. Yeah. Is that a business though, or is that a nonprofit? Well, it's a business if you make money selling the water. So here's the key. Oh, I probably shouldn't share this. But the key is like, <laughs> you can still make, make it a profitable business. You can like, still make it profitable and yeah, do yeah. that. Well, that's, yeah, yeah. that's the goal. Because that type of water delivery is very scalable. So we're talking about like right. amplifying your impact, right? If you were to donate a dollar to a nonprofit, you know, and they would go and do this stuff, like, you know, you could buy one, you can buy one bottle of water for your dollar, or you can donate it to like create a plant that's going to operate for 25 years. And that's going to provide hundreds of thousands of gallons of water over 25 right. years. So your, your impact is being amplified. Yeah. By the project. I love it. And the product. Yeah. I love it. All businesses should be like that. <laughs> are you, uh, are you familiar with uh, TerraCycle? Mm -hmm. Like, I love yeah. that shit. That's what I was studying in college and really wanted to get into. And I don't know how I ended up here, but <laughs> I'm, I'm helping in a different way. But mm -hmm. I loved the idea of these like super profitable companies that also were doing really good, but you didn't need to do the good you still got the value of the product. I think too many companies rely on, rely on people wanting to do good. And so they don't have to deliver as much in the product or the product is, is more expensive because it's doing good. It's like, no, it's gotta be good. And I want, I want to buy it no matter what. 
Because in your situation, in that, in your example, okay, well, if there's two bottles of water in front of me, I might as well buy the one that's going to create a hundred gallons of water. And we should all buy that. Yeah. Consumer choice. So you're, 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 so I'm preaching this converted as far as bottled water, because bottled water is not great for the environment. People oh, don't right. like plastic, right? Like there's, there's a, there's a sin there, right? Like yes. you're sinning. But we're like, already buying it. Yeah. So that's the other thing is like, if those dollars are going to be spent anyway, you're going to buy bottled water. Everyone, like bottled water is huge and it's growing. It's like $40 billion and it's still growing. So like people are going to be, people are going to be buying bottled water. Why not? have them buy something that helps someone, you know, yeah. why not just like, I'm actually surprised because there's not that many brands in water that have a, a good component. Like we do good for blank, right? There's, you know, most of them are just about purity or like we're do, smarter. Well, vitamins. actually, do you know, you'll like this if you don't, do you know liquid death? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I just yeah. heard about them. They're trying yeah. to do good in water. I don't know if it's legit. Brilliant branding. Like brilliant, brilliant branding. Brilliant branding. Yeah. Nobody thought can water in cans. I've actually worked on probably 10 years ago. Like, we should sell water in cans, but didn't execute anything on it. Right. And they figured out that if you make it look cool, then people will do it. I have right? to say, like, Steve bought me a can as a joke because we think the ads are so funny. And I was like, I don't enjoy drinking this water from this can. I really like drinking things from cans anyway, right? It's like a little annoying. And it feels weird to drink water from a can. It does feel weird. It's just on principle. But you can sit you can sit at a bar drinking and that. feel and feel fine. And feel fine. You know, you're not like nursing a glass of water. You That's know, true. It's, it's, you can look the part. Is that the point? Is key. that yeah. That's the whole point is like you're just looking and and the other thing they've got they nailed is the brand voice. Oh yeah. So the brand voice is about this like heavy metal destroying your thirst. It's like it's very aggro. And I, I personally don't connect with it. But uh -huh. from like a professorial perspective, I'm like, oh that's brilliant. Like brilliant. you can own your brand voice. Very hard to copy, you know? Like it's obvious that someone's gonna copy it. Mm -hmm. It's like super playful. Like people they know that they're not serious and everyone knows they're not serious but like it's kind of like you have that friend who's just always being ridiculous and you're just laughing at them and like you laughing with them because they're, they're ridiculous but like it doesn't cease to be funny you know i mean they have an amazing ad on instagram with a porn star that you should definitely go watch if you have not seen it <laughs> but yeah. the question is does it have staying power you know we bought that one can because it was funny right. we're not going to buy any more of it, but I'll talk about it and I'll yeah. mention it and I remember it. Totally. We're talking about it. We're talking about it right now. So I've had more conversations about this brand than like any other brand. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So there you go. <laughs> but it has to translate to sales or else it doesn't really do anything. They're, I think they're like 50 million. So I'm not doing bad. Are they really? So I give them props because I would have done like if, if I were to run with that idea of doing canned water, I would have been like, listen, like, Cans are better for the environment than bottles. Like I would have rationalized and tried yeah. to logically explain to people like cans are better than bottles, right? You want to drink water, drink it out of a can. They totally ignore that. They're just like, fuck it. We're just going to talk about heavy metal. <laughs> They're going to, which, which yeah. actually now I think of it as brilliant because heavy metal and it's a metal can. I actually didn't make that connection before, but you know, they did it in a way that almost seems, it seems whimsical. It's like, that's what I'm saying. You have to, it, it can't be. What you're saying is, and focusing on it's better for the environment, is trying to play to my desire to help the environment at the at the cost of my not enjoying drinking out of this can. Sure. And they're playing to the, there's times when you can drink water and not feel like an idiot. And that's a, that's a need. And mine would be more like I'd have to sacrifice something. Yes. Exactly. Like yeah. I always tell people, like the way that Tom's shoes, I don't wear Tom's, but some people really love Tom's. They like the shoes. They're buying them. They like that they give away a pair, but they're not going to buy shoes they don't. And you yeah. know what? I like that they're giving away a pair, but I don't like Tom's, so I don't wear them. I'm not going to buy them just because they give away a pair. Yeah, I don't think people want to buy things for virtue signaling, just to show people that they No, I don't virtuous. think it's virtue signaling. I think they mean, I, I'm saying, I think they want to help. They want to do whatever the good deed is, but people aren't going to sacrifice their own desires yeah. to do that. So just play that, to the a, thing they want. 
Right. That's a higher level need. That's yeah. more of a self-actualization, I think, need than like, I want to be socially accepted and like have friends and make connections with people, you know? Yeah. So I think you got to fulfill that first one. <laughs> How so? Like if it's, you know, social acceptance, you can't wear ugly shoes, right? <laughs> right. Oh, I see. That's right. the key. Like you have to wear nice shoes first. Exactly. And then the self-actualization is like, oh, I'm actually like improving the world. Like everybody wants to improve the world. Exactly. So it has to tick the first box first, and then yeah. that needs to be an add-on. That's great. This is Maslow's hierarchy. Absolutely. You know. I 100%. I agree. And that's why I, I actually tell people, I'm not even a big fan. A lot of small businesses will, I don't think they're virtue signaling. I think they mean it and they want to share this, but I don't like when people say, you know, just randomly, oh, 10% of profits go to this thing or that thing. It feels, you yeah. know, it's like, just get yeah. the profits. Like, I don't know, unless it's like a really well, authentic every, part of your brand. Yeah. So every company now has a mission. Yeah. And all the missions are going to sound like they're saving the world in some way, you know? And I think a lot of it is fluff. But at the same time, like, why would someone go work for your business you know, versus another business? You have to give them a reason. You know, we're all just selling things, trying to make a living. But like, you know, if you can get that self-actualization piece ticked off, like, oh, you know, yeah. we are giving away some profit. We are, you know, helping homeless. Like, why, why wouldn't that help? Yeah. Um, Vinny, I'm so happy to have uh, heard this full story from you. Thank you so much for sharing it with me. I've been so curious <laughs> about what's been going on with you as I see you in the periphery and on the shelves and stuff. I'm so excited for you. So well done. Congratulations. Same to you. It's been fun to catch up. I'm glad we got to reconnect. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll be back next week with more no BS tips for your agency so you can find more profit, ease, and freedom. The No BS Agency podcast is produced by Yellow House Media. Coordinator is Lou Blazer. This episode is edited by Marty Seafelt. Creative direction by Sean and Tara McMullen. Our theme music is Knock 'em Down by The Shrugs. 